Welcome to the Modern Federalist, the podcast that navigates the complex world of politics, policy, and people. This is your go-to platform for insightful discussions, thought-provoking debates, and a fresh perspective on the issues that shape our world today. We're here to challenge the status quo, to question the narratives, and to bring you a balanced view on the matters that matter most. Your host, Charlton Allen, is a seasoned political analyst, a passionate advocate for freedom, and a firm believer in the power of informed dialogue. With his sharp intellect and candid style, Charlton is here to guide you through a labyrinth of contemporary politics, one episode at a time. So, whether you're a political junkie, a curious observer, or just someone looking for a deeper understanding of the world around you, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Modern Federalist. Welcome to the Revolution. Welcome to the Revolution again. This is another episode of the Modern Federalist, and I'm your host, Charlton Allen. We have a jam-packed agenda for you today, so let's dive right in. First on the docket, we'll be discussing a recent complaint filed against the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill by Speech First, a First Amendment advocacy group. We'll delve into the details and implications of their case. Next, we'll explore allegations of collusion. Where have I heard that word before? Collusion. Between the Biden White House and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The issue at hand? Thwarting efforts to provide heightened scrutiny of foreign grants and contributions to America's institutions of higher learning. Staying on the topic of higher education, we'll examine a recent expose of the extent and cost of the University of Michigan's DEI initiatives. We'll break down the numbers and discuss the potential impact. Then we'll take a look at an intriguing position paper from the Cato Institute. Their suggestion? Devolving programs from the federal government to the respective states as a solution to America's spiraling federal debt crisis. And yes, folks, it is a crisis. Moving on, we'll discuss a University of Colorado professor who has taken a most unusual approach to dealing with her climate anxiety. Folks, she dresses as a butterfly. Hence, we could call her Madam Butterfly. We'll explore her unique story. After that, it's time for my long-anticipated update on the 2024 presidential election. We'll discuss the latest developments, what they could mean for the future. Finally, we'll take a look at the recent Ridley Scott film, Napoleon, which has transitioned to streaming platforms. We'll share our thoughts on the film and its portrayal of the iconic historical figure. So buckle up, listeners. It's going to be a fun and lightning and little bit bouncy ride today on this edition of the Modern Federalist. Let's roll. to jump into an important topic that I have to admit is pretty close to my heart as an alum of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, or UNC. 
We're discussing the efforts of Speech First, a nationwide membership organization dedicated to preserving civil rights secured by law, including the freedom of speech guaranteed by the First Amendment. Speech First is a community of students, parents, faculty, alumni, and concerned citizens fighting for free speech rights on college campuses. The ways they protect students' free speech rights include advocacy, litigation, and education. They believe that free and open discourse is an essential component of a comprehensive education. I agree in that, and so does the Madison Center for Law and Liberty. Recently, Speech First has taken a stand against what they perceive as violations of First Amendment rights at UNC. On January 31, 2024, they filed a formal complaint protest against the UNC chapter for Students for Justice in Palestine for staging a walkout during a recent speaker event. They argue that this action was a violation of both UNC Policy 1300.8 and the Campus Free Speech Act, which prohibits students and student organizations from substantially disrupting or interfering with the rights of others to engage and listen to expressive activity. As an alum of UNC, I can attest that viewpoint discrimination is certainly not a new phenomenon at the university. It was taking place when I was a student there many years ago. The issue of viewpoint discrimination, where certain perspectives are marginalized or silenced, is a serious concern that threatens the very essence of academic freedom and open discourse. Speech First complaint against UNC is a significant step in highlighting these issues and advocating for the rights of all students to express their views freely and without fear of retribution. It's a reminder that universities should be places of robust debate and intellectual exploration, where all viewpoints are heard and respected. However, it's important to note that this is not just about UNC. The issue of free speech on college campuses is a nationwide concern. Across the country, Students are finding their voices stifled and their views marginalized. This is why the work of organizations like Speech First and the Madison Center is so crucial. They and we are standing up for the rights of students and pushing back against policies and practices that limit free speech. In coming episodes, we will continue to delve into these issues. We'll look at other instances where free speech has been threatened on college campuses and discuss what can be done to protect and promote free expression for all. We'll also keep you updated on the progress of Speech First complaint against UNC and what it means for the future of free speech at the university. Remember, the fight for free speech is a fight for the very essence of our republic. It's a fight we must all be a part of. I want to bring your attention to an article from Just the News by Greg Piper entitled, MIT Worked with White House to Kill Tougher Foreign Money Disclosure Rules. This is an insightful article, and it sheds light on the complex and concerning issue of foreign funding on college campuses. Here are the key takeaways from the article. Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, worked with the White House to kill a proposal that would bring additional scrutiny to large foreign donations. Federal watchdog Protect the Public's Trust obtained communications between MIT's David Goldston and the Office of Science and Technology Policy leaders from 2021 through a Freedom of Information Act request. The emails show them strategizing over several months to remove a provision for the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act that would task the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. with reviewing foreign gifts to and contracts with universities of $1 million and up for national security threat. 
The Biden administration's efforts to remove roadblocks to foreign funding for higher education ended the Trump administration's investigations of undisclosed foreign funding under Section 117 of the Higher Education Act. Universities have received $43 billion in foreign gifts and grants since 1990, according to a review by the Transparency Group opened the books last summer. Now, one might ask, why would the White House attempt to tamp down scrutiny on foreign funding on college campuses? This is particularly concerning given the ongoing concerns that China has used access to American universities to facilitate its Thousand Talents program. This program is seen as an attempt to facilitate a reverse brain drain of intellectual property, particularly IP that is helpful in national security. Current United States law mandates the disclosure of foreign contracts and grants. However, this disclosure is imperfect and needs enhancement. The Chinese theft of IP in the national security sector has not only resulted in criminal charges, it endangers our national security. I must give props to the transparency groups and the author of the article for bringing these issues to light. It's through their diligent work that we're able to discuss these pressing matters today. In future episodes, we will continue to examine these very issues. We'll delve deeper into the implications of foreign funding in our higher educational institutions, the potential threats to our national security, and what can be done to address these concerns. I believe in the importance of national security, the rule of law, and the need for transparency by our institutions of higher learning. We'll continue to explore these topics in our upcoming episodes, always with an eye towards preserving our values and protecting our nation. I would like to take a few minutes to discuss an intriguing article from Jennifer Cavani at the College Fix. This article, entitled The University of Michigan Now Has More Than 500 Jobs Dedicated to DEI, Payroll Costs Exceed $30 million, presents a comprehensive analysis of the University of Michigan's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. The University of Michigan, one of our nation's premier educational institutions, has over 500 jobs dedicated to DEI, with payroll costs exceeding a staggering $30 million annually. This includes at least 241 paid employees whose primary focus is DEI. Payroll costs break down into $23.24 million for salaries and $7.44 million for benefits. Interestingly, 13 DEI staff members earn more than $200,000 a year, and 66 earn more than $100,000 a year when factoring in benefits. In addition, 76 faculty or staff members work part-time in what are called DEI unit leads, advancing diversity efforts in one of UM's 51 schools, colleges, and units. When you factor in those who work full-time and part-time on DEI and consider open and unfilled positions, the total number of positions at Michigan's flagship university advancing DEI exceeds more than 500. The University of Michigan disputes these findings, arguing that they are, quote, flawed and misleading, end quote, since they include employees whose primary duties are not solely DEI-related. Nonetheless, this article raises important questions about the role of DEI in our educational institutions and how resources are allocated towards these initiatives. Now, let's put these numbers into perspective. The $30 million spent annually on DEI could pay for the tuition and fees of 1,781 students at the University of Michigan. 
That in and of itself is a staggering number. Nearly 2,000 underprivileged students could have a substantial chunk of their college education paid for simply by reallocating these resources. Moreover, the average salary of DEI employees, as stated in the article, is a figure that deserves warranted scrutiny. With some DEI staff members earning more than $200,000 a year and 60 cents earning more than $100,000 a year when factoring in benefits, it's clear that these positions are not only numerous, they are well compensated at the University of Michigan. In conclusion, the allocation of resources towards DEI initiatives at the University of Michigan is a topic that warrants further discussion and scrutiny. That discussion and scrutiny should not be limited, though, to the University of Michigan. As we continue to navigate the complex landscape of higher education, it's crucial that we consider the financial implications of these decisions on the real-life possibilities of the students who are there to earn their education at our institutions of higher learning. In this segment, I would like to discuss a thought-provoking briefing paper by Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute. His paper, titled Reviving Federalism to Tackle the Government Debt Crisis, presents a compelling argument for a new approach to America's escalating debt crisis. Mr. Edwards begins by painting a stark picture of our nation's financial health. Our federal government debt has skyrocketed to a staggering $26 trillion dollars which amounts to nearly $200,000 per household. This debt, growing at an alarming rate, poses significant burdens on both current and future taxpayers and increases the risk of macroeconomic instability and financial crises. Despite numerous efforts to tackle this issue with new budget rules, our federal government lawmakers have been unable to balance the budget for over two decades. Today, more than a quarter of federal spending is financed through borrowing. Interestingly, Edwards points out that the federal government debt is eight times larger than the combined debt of all state and local governments. Why is this the case? The answer lies in the extensive constitutional, statutory, and economic restrictions that many states have on deficits, debt, and spending, which guide them towards greater fiscal responsibility. Mr. Edwards proposes a partial solution to America's debt problem devolve a large part of federal spending to the respective states, allowing them to fund it themselves. Currently, the federal government spends over $1 trillion a year on state and local activities such as education, housing, and transportation. If these activities were funded at the state level, they could be done so with current revenues and not debt. In conclusion, Edwards suggests that to avert a debt crisis, America should leverage its federal structure and decentralize many government programs. When you consider the polarization of our national political scene and the wildly varying views of the appropriate role of government on domestic policy issues, devolving power from the federal government to the respective states makes a lot of sense. A state such as California or Massachusetts may desire a more robust social program than North Dakota and Texas. Mr. Edwards' reasoned approach is worth considering and has the potential to address a lot of what ails our nation's governance today and also tomorrow.
Now, this next story is so outlandish, you're probably going to think it's an early April Fool's joke. But folks, this is real, and it's happening at the University of Colorado Boulder. Beth Osnes, a theater professor at the university, has found a truly unique way to combat climate anxiety. Get this. She dresses and performs as a butterfly. Yes, you heard that right, a butterfly. Now, I've heard of some interesting coping mechanisms, but this one takes the cake. Osnes claims that the feelings of helplessness and despair she experiences are due to her climate anxiety. She describes it as, quote, like swallowing crude oil or something, end quote. Now, I must tell you, I've never swallowed crude oil, so I'll have to take her word for it. This is just one example of the truly bizarre lengths people go to these days in our country to make some political point. This is testament to the power of fear and the impact it has on our behavior. It also raises some serious questions about the state of our education system and the messages we're sending to our students. Why are we encouraging this kind of behavior? Why are we allowing our universities to become breeding grounds for fear and anxiety? These are questions we need to be asking. Dressing up as a butterfly and performing interpreted dances will not solve any problems. Real or imagined is only going to make people question your sanity. So I challenge all of our listeners, whether you're at the University of Colorado Boulder or beyond, always keep your feet on the ground and your head out of the clouds. Or in this case, out of the butterfly net. And one more thing before we move on to another topic. Special thanks to the staff at the College Fix for taking this story out of the cocoon that is UC Boulder and letting it take flight throughout our nation and beyond. As I promised in the prior episode, I'm going to discuss the latest developments in the 2024 United States presidential election. On the Democrat side, Joseph Biden continues to steamroll his practically non-existent challengers. He even won a writing campaign in New Hampshire, a testament to his enduring popularity, at least with Democrat primary voters in that state. On the Republican side, things are a bit more complicated. After a second-place finish in Iowa, Ron DeSantis ended his campaign before the New Hampshire primary. The polling in New Hampshire was atrocious for DeSantis in a very distant third. There really was no path forward for him. It was a wise decision to shut things down and preserve his options for the future. Nikki Haley, on the other hand, desperately needed to win New Hampshire, but she failed to do so. She lost handedly to Trump before a GOP electorate that was more receptive to a GOP candidate not named Donald Trump than just about any other in the nation. Even with the support of the incumbent Republican governor, she lost, and lost by a substantial margin. The primaries now turn to South Carolina, where I expect Biden and Trump to win by significant margins. Do not be surprised if Nikki Haley is crushed in her home state. That's what the polling suggests, and that is what I expect. Biden will cruise as well. 
As for the states coming up after South Carolina, it's important to keep an eye on them. But I will say this. I don't see anything in any of the polling that suggests the outcome will be anyone other than Joseph Biden on the Democrat side and Donald Trump on the Republican side. There are plenty of pundits that will say the race isn't over. We've only heard from two states, and that is true. But there's just nothing in the tea leaves that suggests that anything's going to be different in the states to come. That said, I do not see any path for Nikki Haley at this point. I'm somewhat surprised she is still in the race, given the polling in South Carolina. A loss by significant margins may permanently damage her prospects in the future. The big winners right now, in my view, remain Trump, Biden, and RFK Jr. The Washington establishment in both parties needs to be worried that this could be a pivot point election. Voter frustration is at a level I have not seen before. When everything is said and done in November, this election may look a lot more like 1860, 1912, 1948, 1968, and 1992 than it will look like 2020. Another thing, keep an eye on Governor Sununu of New Hampshire. This will not be the last election cycle we hear from him. His political career is far from over, and a Republican governor in a New England state is a rare find these days. And New Hampshire remains a swing state, despite its size. Is Nikki Haley making a play to be vice president? Perhaps, but I just don't see it working. Donald Trump is as unconventional as candidates come, and it's showing in how he's handling things. This would be, could be, a huge moment for him if he were to play unifier in his party. There have been hints of that, His approach still seems to be scorched earth as far as Nikki Haley is concerned. A brief footnote. One of the perils of recording a segment is that events can occur during post-production. The previous segment was recorded on the day of the South Carolina Democrat presidential primary. Joe Biden steamrolled his opposition with 96.22% of the vote. Now, that's a margin typically reserved for dictators in oppressed countries. Hmm. The Democrat Party is monolithic in their support for President Biden. The only thing between him and renomination is the age-old question, his old age. We have never had a president as old as Biden. These are uncharted waters, but for now, anyone suggesting the Democrat Party will nominate someone else this year is engaged in a form of wishful thinking. Gavin Newsom is simply positioning himself for a future candidacy whenever it may be. Ah, Charlton Allen, my old friend. Do you know the imperial proverb which tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. Cool story, bro, but that's their own movie franchise. The force is strong with this one. The Modern Federalist Podcast, hosted by Charlton Allen. Find us today where you get your podcasts. The Modern Federalist, hosted by Charlton Allen, will return in a moment.
are back today with Grant Leffler, the publisher of the Carolina Review, the conservative libertarian publication at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thanks for joining us, Grant. Yes, thanks for having me back. Today we are discussing the recent motion picture release of Ridley Scott's epic Napoleon. As we all know, or should know, uh, unless our schools are totally failing us, Napoleon was an enigma. And like all fascinating historical figures, it's a bold endeavor to try to capture his story on film. By necessity, a filmmaker has to focus on certain threads and from there try to weave a tapestry. I read your recent review, Grant, and it sounds like Scott failed in pulling that off. Yeah, sadly he did, which is, I think is a shame given the fact that I really do like really Scott as a director. I think he's probably the most talented directors to really emerge really out of the, uh, since the new Hollywood area era that emerged in the 1970s. Uh, but I do think that this was, it had noble efforts behind it. It had an idea of what it wanted to be. It just did not put that onto the screen. My main concern with the movie is that, well, first of all, when you're dealing with Napoleon, Napoleon is, you know, one of history's most, oh, and not even complex, but most storied figures. Uh, his exploits can, when written down, can really just like take an entire large bookshelf or an entire library when we think about it. He's that much, uh, had that many exploits and had many situations and battles and wars that he uh, entered in in his personal life too. Uh, that's really interesting for really all history scholars such as myself but but the problem with this movie uh where we discussed napoleon was that it decided to focus primarily on his personal life and his relationship with the empress josephine the issue with that and i think that's all fair game for you know a director when doing it, especially a biopic to discuss the personal life i think it's essential to discuss the personal life to get into some secret hidden you know complexity in the personal character of your subject However, they niggered on it too much and just simply it did not do the character of Napoleon justice in the fact that they've been trying to portray Napoleon as kind of this weird, uncomfortable figure who is, you no, know, I guess you can say sexually frustrated at all times. And this didn't really make a whole lot of sense in the, you know, the reality of Napoleon, which, you know, is pretty well documented that he was this very kind of charismatic, uh, kind of brilliant figure who really just commanded, you know, armies of millions and thousands of men uh, to, you know, basically do his bidding. And I think that is what the film really lacked, was showing that kind of mastery in his personal life and his personal relations with other people and his mastery of politics, of course, during the French Revolution and the uh, period that uh, came after it when he was emperor, when he found himself emperor of the French Empire. Uh, it just did not show that. And I thought it came out as a very kind of bizarre attempts to forge a new identity for Napoleon that's one that's not really going to hold up. Well, before we get too much further along in our conversation, your review, I must say, educated me on a point. I am sad to report, well, sad may be a poor choice of words, I miss the cinematic masterpiece Nomeo and Juliet. What's that all about? Uh, so Nomeo and Juliet, so a little context when i was eight years old i think it was eight years old and this was 2011 and i came across um while i was watching a disney channel just you know all these massive promotions these commercials for nomeo and juliet which was this uh computer animated uh supposed masterpiece that was going to you know be the next toy story basically it's basically romeo and juliet shakespeare's romeo and juliet set 
in the animated back garden of someone in England with garden gnomes, played by garden gnomes. Uh, and I, I thought to myself, you know, being the eight-year-old, nine-year-old that I was, that, oh, this is brilliant. This is fantastic. This is my kind of movie. But of course, you know, when I went to see my my parents took me to see it, uh, I, I I was old enough to realize that what I was looking at was a a crock of a, you know what and uh, that's that that's that's kind of my reaction to Romeo and Juliet that it was all just hype for it in my personal mind but it just didn't live up to it and that's kind of my same reaction with Napoleon that there was a lot of hype there was a lot of potential for this but it said Wayne didn't live up to what it could have been. Well, last back to the topic at hand, Napoleon. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the movie didn't meet your expectations. Sadly not. And it seems one of your criticisms was the plotting pace. Did it seem like uh, the movie took uh, about as long as Napoleon's trek to the gates of Moscow and back? It's a, because well, Napoleon is a long movie. I believe it's two and a half hours. The, the, my problem with pacing is basically what has to do with how do you try to convey all this information about such a complex no story figure into a two and two and a half hour movie. Well, you know, you focus on bits and pieces here and there, which you know is fine for a movie. But you know, we the problem was that it was too much focus on the personal life of Napoleon and his worship of Josephine, and not enough on you know his politics, his plans and battle. There was great battle sequences, no doubt about it, and those kind of go on for a long. Uh, Austerlitz, for example, and Waterloo. However, they, the battles just kind of jump around. You don't really know what's totally going on with the, the historical figures, the characters, the battles. What's was there to gain? Was there to lose? And so on and so forth. And when you're doing a movie about you know war, you want to kind of know what's going on. Though. What? Why are they fighting this war? Why are they fighting this battle? Other than the show, you know, this is the battle. What happened? Oh, you know, here's 20 minutes on you know Napoleon's mastery at Austerlitz. Well, okay, I just want to know what's kind of going on behind it. Why did this have to happen? And that's what the film the film really fails at. The film is also doesn't give fair it's you know, there was a lot of, of course, in the French Revolution, Napoleon times, uh, there was a lot of great side characters uh to Napoleon, not just Josephine, but you know, you have Robespierre, you have Paul Barras, you have Talleyrand, and for some of the characters it kind of goes into depth about, you know, who this okay, this is Barras, this is, you know, what they did. This is what they believed in. Okay. But then you have to kind of figure out like, okay, what's Tauran doing there? Why, why is he important? Doesn't really tell you who he is and you kind of have to figure it out on your own. And so I thought that was kind of one of the film's main weak points that it didn't tell all about its main characters, even though we were supposed to believe that they were all very kind of inconsequential to Napoleon's rise and his maintenance of power and the waging of his wars too. Hmm. Were there any other particular scenes or moments in the film that resonated with you? Oh, when I say resonate, I, I do believe there was one scene I did particularly like is when uh, Napoleon was attempted to become first counsel. He uh, kind of ushered the, the French directory into this grand kind of, you know, grand ballroom meeting room and basically declared himself as the first counsel. Of course, the directory kind of revolted in that moment. But Napoleon, you know, awkwardly kind of to usher in his uh, troops and to kind of call it down. And I think it is, I think that was a good scene. As much as I thought a lot of the tone of the film was kind of going in between this kind of bizarre kind of bizarre kind of almost awkward comic relief to some extent. And also, you know, having this, you know, fleeting seriousness uh, interspend with it. 
I do believe that scene is kind of just shows kind of you know, the chaos of history and kind of shows you know, Napoleon, you know, at times, you know, he was up against, you know, a lot of, you know, powerful foes and had to deal with them using, you know, his military might. And sometimes he did somewhat come clumsily, but nonetheless, he did it. And so I did think that was an interesting scene to see kind of the, that adds a new dimension to Napoleon's character that I kind of appreciate as like, okay, well, he was a master, but he wasn't a perfect master of the situation at the time. How do you think the audience will receive this film? And do you think it will be a strong contender for Best Picture at the Academy Awards? Well, I think the audience response already has been kind of divided on the film's historical inaccuracies. Uh, there's been there's plenty of historical inaccuracies, which I think is personally fine when it comes to a biopic movie on a historical figure, because when you're doing a, on a historical figure, I mean, you do have to try to take some dramatic liberty. I mean, that's just kind of a given fact, given the fact that this was someone that lived in the era of, you know, over 200 years ago in the uh, late 1700s and the early 1800s. Um, I, I do think that I didn't have much of a problem with the historical inaccuracies. I know some people complain about, oh, Austerwitz wasn't 100% correct with the, uh, you know, just, you know, the ice wasn't that deep or the ice and all that stuff. You know, when, once you see the film, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. But I, I do think that on the terms of, you know, how critics have received it, critics have been somewhat mostly supportive of it. However, I don't think this will go all the way to the best picture category just because it's been a pretty good year for movies, in my personal opinion. Not only there's been big, bigger blockbusters or, you know, kind of on par uh, blockbusters such as Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Oppenheimer, Barbie 2, but also there's been a lot of great smaller independent films such as uh, The Holdovers, for example, and uh, also the new Jonathan Glazer film, uh, The Zone of Interest About the Holocaust, which is supposed to be fantastic, which I think has a real uh, chance of be, uh, getting the best of picture uh, award. So, but, you know, the Oscar committee in the, of the Academy Awards, they're relatively, you know, have surprised us in the past, so they might surprise us again and might pick uh, a big, uh, big budget blockbuster. Well, I have to admit, I do enjoy the historical epic genre and biopics as well, particularly when the film is done right. It sounds like Napoleon may fall short, but ultimately everyone will have the opportunity to judge for themselves. And the reality is a flop in one year, in one era, can become a cult classic before you know it. We've all oh, that's seen very that. True. That's very true. And I would say also, just to make some Quick film recommendations. Uh, the best depiction of Napoleon in a film is from a silent film, a French silent film from 1927, just called Napoleon. And my personal opinion is that the silent movie is the best uh, depiction of Napoleon to date and the best film named Napoleon, uh, particularly because it's about seven or, um, or about five and a half hours long. But it is worth watching the five hours uh, if you have the time because it's such a wonderfully inventive film. Also, I will recommend, and this is the only time I'll probably ever do this in my life, and say that the Soviet Union did something wonderful, is that in 1966, they released a four-part uh, feature film adaptation of War and Peace. It is one of the most wonderful achievements in filmmaking history. It's compulsively watchable. I think everybody should get their hands on it because it is a streaming on HBO Max, actually, all four parts. It's about seven and a half hours, and as long as you treat it like a miniseries, it's fantastic. You can see the collapse of Napoleon's invasion of Russia right before your very eyes with the use of uh, over 15,000 uh, Soviet army extras. It's absolutely fantastic. 
Those are great recommendations. Grant, thanks again for joining us. If you are interested in Grant's review of the Ridley Scott film Napoleon, check out the December edition of the Carolina Review. It's available online at carolinareviewonline.org. And if you're interested in checking out Ridley Scott's film Napoleon, it's now available on most streaming services as premium video on demand. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this riveting episode of The Modern Federalist. I'm your host, Charlton Allen, and as we wrap up our third installment, I can't help but feel the anticipation building for what's to come in episode four. Trust me, it's going to be a doozy. Now let's talk a little bit about football. The Super Bowl is just around the corner and the tension is palpable. The San Francisco 49ers may be the slight favorites, but my gut tells me that Kansas City not only won't go down without a fight, that they will pull it out in the end. Picture this, a late game drive by the Chiefs, the stadium echoing with cheers, and a generous dose of Taylor Swift cheering and emoting on our screens. And fear not, listeners, the TV network won't let it cut into those precious commercial breaks. After all, capitalism waits for no one not even Taylor Swift. But let's shift gears to a weightier matter. Yesterday, news broke about the special counsel's investigation into those classified documents involving President Biden. The revelations are nothing short of breathtaking. It's a devastating blow to Team Biden, and it raises serious concerns and questions about his cognitive abilities that have been lingering in voters' minds. The presidency demands a leader capable of high-level decision-making. So we'll be diving deeper into this issue in the days and weeks ahead. So hold on tight, my friends. The election year promises more twists and turns than a roller coaster. As Benjamin Franklin reportedly and wisely said after the signing of the Constitution, our form of government would be a republic. If we can keep it. Can we? That's the question that echoes through the corridors of history. And it's up to us, the vigilant citizens, to ensure that the flame of liberty burns bright. Stay tuned, stay informed, and until next time, this is Charlton Allen signing off. Remember the fate of our republic, if we can keep it, rest in our hands. Thanks for tuning in to The Modern Federalist. Don't forget to subscribe for more thought-provoking episodes. Until next time.